Ben. Hi, Linux Basement listeners, and welcome to Phoenix's Student Hacker's Guide to Linux. And today's topic, rootkits. My name is Aaron, but you guys can call me Phoenix. Well, in today's segment, I'm going to talk about rootkits in some detail. Now, there isn't going to be a practical aspect like last week, but more of a discussion. The idea of this guide is to make you aware of rootkits, what they can do, their history, the varying different types of rootkits. I'm also going to discuss a couple of possible countermeasures and steps that you can take to defend yourself against rootkits. So I'll start off by describing what a rootkit is and a little bit about their history. Well, a rootkit can be best described as a piece of software that functions at the lowest level of an operating system, infiltrating the kernel. Rootkitting is a technique that is often used by hackers and virus creators to hide files in their processes that their intrusion creates. This technology has also been used by manufacturers to hide digital rights management software, and one of the best known cases of this was Sony. I can't really talk about rootkits without talking about this first. It's one of the best known cases of manufacturers using rootkits to hide DRM technology. However, due to many issues within their rootkit, and the DRM software was soon discovered, and Sony was left with a lot of egg on their face, and some would say lucky to avoid prosecution. In 2005, Sony BMG, in an attempt to prevent people from copying CDs, started to bundle with its albums two pieces of software that were installed without notice and without warning in the EULA. These packages were called Extended Copyright Protection, or XCP, and Media Mars CD-3. Furthermore to this, their lack of any uninstallation software, some argued made them liable for both civil and criminal actions. This incident was to shock the world, but did it shock the world because a music label had taken extreme steps, or did it bring the general public closer to the truth, that your machine can be hacked with something as simple as a purchase of a new album? In real terms, the purpose of a rootkit is to maintain access, attack and compromise other systems, and to gather or destroy information was covering deleting any tracks of them ever being there. However, the truth of it is, rootkits have been around from at least the mid-90s, and the tools that went into making the first rootkits, like file cleaning software, which was found back in 1989 on a hack system, have been around for a while. As far back as 1994, when the first rootkits were becoming apparent on the Sun OS, then in 1996, when they were discovered on a Linux system. Rootkits, or, as they are also known by the term, kits, which I think is, in respect, a very good description for them, due mostly to them being a collection of different tools making a combination of processes to gain the desired stealthy freedom. It is in Unix where the term rootkit comes from, a kit to have full privileges of a system, and as we all know, root being the account with full super user privileges. If a corporate company can employ software, which at the very heart of it and its design is to gain full unsolicited access to a system to stop you from copying CDs, what do you think a hacker could do with this technology? I have personally met victims of rootkits whose personal data has been stolen across multiple accounts and had the credit cards and email addresses being used without their permission. These are not just average weekend computer users, but seasoned, experienced computer professionals. Anyone can fall foul to a rootkit. However, steps can be taken to protect yourself from this. Some can be employed by using plain and simple common sense, some by the community, and some by thinking about security when installing and preparing your base install. Imagine yourself as a system admin. You have two weeks holiday planned. Before you go, you unlock all the filing cabinets, write the password to every computer on a post-it note, and stick it to the computer. Open every port on your firewall, pick your suitcase up, and forget the office for two weeks. What do you think the damage would be when you get back? The reality of a rootkit is, all of the above can be done without the knowledge of the system admin. 
However, a key point to remember here is rootkits are not exploits in themselves. They are only deployed in an already compromised system. Those threats are as real in Windows as they are in Linux. Rootkits can be broken down into a number of different categories. Virtualized rootkits. These are the one of the most nastiest rootkits that I can imagine, and will be modified. Uh, and they work by modifying the boot sequence so that the rootkit is loaded rather than the, the OS, and then from there they're able to load the original OS as a virtual machine. This enables the rootkit to intercept all of the hardware calls that the OS makes. The worrying aspect is twinned with the growing number of CPUs that are supporting virtualization technology within their actual chipset. In my personal belief, this rootkit technology will grow and grow. Kernel level. A kernel level rootkit works by actually replacing the kernel code or adding extra code to the OS, either in the kernel or by device drivers. Most OSs tend not to distinguish the difference between kernel and device drivers, and in so, kernel rootkits tend to come in the form of loadable kernel modules in Linux and device drivers in Windows. The massive issue here is with unfettered access to the code, these rootkits have a tendency to make the OS unstable. They're also known for being very hard to detect, as they work at the same layer as the OS. Library level. Library rootkits patch or hook system call functions with code that hides the attacker. In theory, they should be easy to find by examining the code libraries for changes, DLLs in Windows, for changes against the originals. However, due to updates and service pack upgrades, this isn't so easy in practice. Application level. Application level rootkits work by replacing actual binaries with trojanized ones, or they can patch or hook existing binaries. Firmware rootkits. Firmware rootkits infect systems by creating a persistent malware image within the driver or platform firmware. It is easy for rootkits to hide here as the code is really inspected for integrity. Detecting rootkits can be a bit of a mixed bag. Rootkit binaries can mostly be detected by holistic meshes or signature-based detection in the similar ways a virus scanner detects viruses, as long as they haven't been run by the user and they haven't concealed themselves. Rootkits have many different tools in one kit that can replace many important and critical programs and tools within an OS. The problem lays here that you can't trust the results of what the OS is telling you from a simple case of listing running processes. The reality is the OS now doesn't operate in the way it was, its designers intended it to. Due to the replacement, of critical tools and libraries is also very unwise if you've detected a rootkit just to attempt to completely remove it. In most cases this could lead to your system being completely unstable and permanently damaged. One of the most reliable methods of detecting a rootkit is to use a live CD as the OS isn't affected and it will be able to boot your system in a read-only manner. Non-running rootkits cannot hide itself. Rootkits tend to hide themselves during scan by suspending their services until any scans are completed. As you can imagine, it's extremely difficult for a rootkit to hide itself if it's not allowed to run. There are many products in both Linux and Windows for detecting rootkits, but the reality holds clear that prevention is far better than cure. It's a fact that most system admins and experienced administrators would rather than attempt to remove a rootkit, would save data files, format and reinstall. With imaging software, it makes the installation of CleanOS a simple procedure compared to the time, effort and cost of a suitably experienced admin to locate, remove and check system integrity. Now that I have scared you about the damage and implications of rootkits, I think I should tell you about the many countermeasures you can employ to protect yourself against these threats. The good news for Linux users is there are a number of tools available, and for most parts, they employ quite simple intelligence in their design. 
One of the key methods is fingerprinting the OS so that any critical files that have been altered or changed by the rootkit can be marked up against the hash and easily, and easily noticed. The first thing I would like to talk about is the patch that you could put in between the chair and the keyboard, namely you. I've said this before, but I really want to reiterate this point. Rootkits are not exploits. They are only used when a system has been compromised. By ensuring that your system is up to date and checking your system's security, uh, trying to prevent it from attack and penetration, make sure that you are using trusted sources for your software. One of the key defensive strategies to defending yourself from zero days is mapping the behavior of applications. Two applications spring to mind, and the choice for using them is completely up to you. SC Linux or Security Enhanced Linux and AppArmor both utilize a Linux security module, or known as LSM. The criticism of SE Linux is that for an average desktop user installing a number of packages on a weekly basis, which in my opinion and a high number of people using Linux are likely to experiment with new open source packages, the constant configuration of security, security policies may be a hindrance. I've often been told that this defensive strategy is best suited for large IT networks that will have installed all the packages that they need and then use SE Linux more as a lockdown tool. In short, and this is by no means an in-depth explanation of SE Linux, uses NSA's MAC, which in this context stands for Mandatory Access Control, which cannot be bypassed by a user. I think what I should do here is maybe explain a couple of terms that I'm going to use here. I'm going to mention what dis discretionary access control, it's known as DACS. Discretionary access control is when a system restricts access to an object dependent on password or to a group that that object belongs to. Users with certain privileges can either bypass or grant access to that object. You heard me refer to MAC earlier on, which stands for Mandatory Access Control. Mandatory access control is when a system restricts access to an object based on its sensitivity and needing necessary clearance to view it, normally by the virtue of flags. This cannot be bypassed, uh, and this is what makes it a mandatory access. And when I'm referring to objects, try to think of these as a passive entities that control or receive information. Access to these objects gives you access to those informations that they hold. Some examples of this would be records, blocks, pages, segments, files, directories, directory trees, and programs, as well as bits, bytes, words, fields, processors, video displays, keyboards, clocks, printers, network nodes. In the case of SE Linux, not only is there objects, but services are also known as domains. Within the construct, domains are not allowed to access other parts of the system that anyone wouldn't generally be in the nature of that domain to do. So example, Firefox wouldn't be able to gain access to any SSH keys. In this approach, it limits the chance of greatly of third-party applications being able to have what we would term as buffer overflows. This is not for the faint-hearted, and as I've said, there is debate if this is truly a user-friendly enough approach for a desktop user market. My feelings, and by no way base your opinion on this, but if you're opening your system up to the internet and offering services such as a web server or Java server, then you should consider some form of intrusion prevention system. You have a door for everyone to access on the internet with a service that can be exploited. Another package that I'd like to talk about is a package called AppArmor. 
Now, AppArmor was heavily developed by Novell and what's known as a named-based access control, and it also utilizes the Linux security module. One of AppArmor's main goals is to be easy to understand and implement. One of the key features of AppArmor is what's known as learning mode, and at the heart of this mode is to help users maintain and manage policies. Learning mode is sometimes referred to as complain mode, and during this mode it will allow process to run that it would have normally denied and log that down. This allows the user to go back and check what process is being run when the program was being run. The key feature here is easy deployment in a production environment. However, the big key is we profile programs rather than the systems. We could profile the whole system, but this could take a while. The idea we profile a program that will likely be to be targets for exploits such as web browsers, PDF readers, SSH demons and so on. The concept is based on a network threat model. Seems as what in reality we really are protecting ourselves against is attacks from outside or within the network. The reality of it is we're making a firewall of sorts around any application. I'm going to get a little technical here for a second, but I think it will help to clarify some points. There are two security concept models to think about. One is misuse prevention, which works with blacklists, or, or, or the way to think of blacklists uh, are things that we are not allowed to do, or anomaly prevention, which works by whitelists, or things that we are allowed to do. Blacklists are the kind of things that virus killers employ. So it basically says, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do this, and you can't do that. It's basically a signature-based protection. Well, 70,000 signatures later, and they are still updating, shows that there's flaws in the misuse prevention, because attackers can always think of new ways to do things. In a polar opposite, anomaly protection lists what can be done, and everything else is blocked by default. This is by far a more secure model, because it doesn't matter what the attacker thinks of a new way to do something or not, it's still going to be blocked. A good example of how AppArmor can defend an application and how we put a firewall around a, a program as such is NTPD, or Network Time Protocol Daemon. Now this is a daemon that has root privileges and is going to change something on your system, namely the time. And it needs a network port open so it can communicate with the time server to clarify the time. If someone finds an exploit in NTPD, then they could spawn a root shell. Well, with AppArmor, we can lock down what access NTPD has to what files. So much so that we can make sure that NTPD doesn't have access to a shell, doesn't have access to any other files like password files. So if it is exploited, then all that can really be done is that the time of your system can be changed. It's very quick to make policies, and I think the learning curve is quite small, with built-in policies for much typical user stuff, and syntax that's pretty easy to understand and implement without too much hard work. You will need to do your own research on this subject, as in the context of this segment, I'm not really going to have time to talk you through configuring it. However, both of these tools are in essence a way of stopping you from being hacked, and would give you almost a superior level of control if someone inserts malicious code into your OS by defining not only how applications function, but at a level well beyond layer security, right at the heart of the kernel. I have supplied many links with many links within this documentation to support this segment, and my advice is to go and take some time and investigate with you for your own specific requirements. The documentation will be available on both the Linux Basement website and www.thelinuxsociety.org.uk. 
A more traditional method is to look for a rootkit on the system, but in my opinion this approach is far too late and it's something I wouldn't do. But there are two scanning tools available for Linux called Check Rootkit and RK Hunter. Both are signature based and both have extreme limitations. Due to them being signature based, they are only going to find rootkits that are well known and not been modified. When you think that rootkits are predominantly written in C, it's easy for them to be modified and become undetectable. Now you could run them against the life, your live system, it's not recommended. Or you could run them against an alternative media such as a live CD. You could load a live CD, mount your drives, and then scan those drives. That would be, the, the latter would be my suggestion. However, this is only going to pick up the most lame of rootkits. And as I've already said, if you do find a rootkit, then it's very, very unwise for you to rip that rootkit straight out. Another package that I'd like to talk to you today about is a package called Tripwire. Tripwire is designed to detect any changes that are made to files and di directories and then notify via, via email. Um, there is a lot of work to set this up. Tripwire stores information about critical files and the particulars in the database, such as date and time, file size, and checksum. Then Tripwire can match this information about what it knows about those files against what it finds out about those files. Tripwire needs to update its records very regularly, so running it as a cron, cron job is much advised. Then Tripwire can send out an email when any file that has been changed. Tripwire encrypts its own database as well to save it from being tampered. The true power of Tripwire is its easy detection of trojanized binaries. This works by checking the checksum of the files. Once a hacker tries to replace the binaries with their own or tampers with other files, the checksum will be changed. The concept is pretty simple in design, however the power that it holds is massive. My advice is that if you set up Tripwire, you should do it on a clean OS. With the added problem, if you set it up and you're already set on, on your system or that you've been running for a while, you don't actually know if you've been rootkitted or not, so you may be giving yourself a false sense of security. And I suppose with the good news that Ubuntu Heron will be coming out soon, I imagine a lot of people will be doing upgrades. Uh, it may be worth, while you're doing that, to spend some time investigating Tripwire, uh, backing up all your data files, having a clean OS, and installing Tripwire. I don't really have the time to go into a detailed explanation or a how-to guide, but what I can tell you is there's a lot of, of links in my support documentation to go along with this segment. Um, and there is a lot of documentation out on the internet. So any of the things that I've talked to you about today, such as SE Linux, AppArmor, Tripwire, with a, a day's worth of research, you're going to be able to give yourself a very secure system indeed. Well, I suppose that brings us to the end of Phoenix's Student Hacker's Guide to Linux in this segment to do with rootkits. Um, I hope I've not scared you too much about the dangers of rootkits. Um, this is to make you aware that they are there and they are a real threat. However, there are steps that you can take to defend yourself. I've said this a couple of times during this segment, but it is a point that I'd like to make very, very, very clear. Rootkits are not exploits in their own right. They are only deployed on an already hacked system. If you take steps to defend yourself against this, you take great steps on defending yourself against being rootkitted. Once again, I'd like to apologize if I've ummed and erred and sounded a little bit rushed. Um, this is only my second time now of doing anything like this. Um, well, this has been Phoenix. Uh, I'd like to thank you all for listening. 
do go over to either the Linux Basement website or www.thelinuxsociety.org.uk for any support documentation with this segment. Um, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Hack Republic Radio. HPR is sponsored by caro.net, so head on over to caro.net for all your hosting needs.